Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast, where we talk about the new travel guidelines for Canada with Canada's travel guru, Claire Newell. Also, heart health with Dr. John Weisler. Three breakup words, confidence in career changes, and love in a time of coronavirus. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast begins now. We knew he was a hunk. He's definitely the goat, but is he a god? He's unbelievable, Tom Brady, that is. What a Super Bowl it was and how lovely it was that vaccinated healthcare workers were invited. And we're sitting there in the stands cheering him on. In a year characterized by masks, anti-maskers, physical distancing, hand sanitizing, gowns and gloves, cleaning like never before, and lockdowns and lockdown love, increased divorce rates, we've all experienced our own version of this new normal. But it was nice to have a little, um, you know, a nice Super Bowl game to uh, watch today and uh, how exciting it was. Well, not exactly. It was a, it was a no-brainer who was going to win there, but uh, not much competition. Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show, a show about sexual health, how it relates to overall health, making your relationships the best they can be. Good evening. I am Maureen McGrath, a registered nurse, nurse continence advisor, sexual health educator, and of course, host of this program. I am joined by Andrew, the fabulous tech producer there. Andrew, how are you this evening? Yeah, you know. You know, come on. It was, give me more than it, was that. Good, it was a good Super Bowl. It was all right. <laughs> yeah, it was all right. I mean, but, I mean, it wasn't good. I, I didn't really care which team won. I, 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 was, I did. I was firmly in the whoever. I just want a good game. And it wasn't really a good game. It was kind of boring and one-sided. It was all about Tom, though. Well, exactly, right? That's it. And that was the thing. You know, Brady, you know, I, I think probably played, you know, the best half of football he's ever played in his life. Um, Probably. And, and what, at the age of like 300, he's still doing it. So exactly. it's <laughs> kind of crazy that he can still do that. You know. But, you know, I, I think he was motivated, motivi- motivated by people who said, you're too old, who have ageism, perhaps. Oh, you know, yeah, I mean, I think that can drive a lot of people. You know, there is something about... Uh, a good life being sweet revenge um, or the best kind true. of revenge. Anyway, uh, if you would like to be a part of the show, we'd love to have you. Please give me a call. The number to call is one 399 That's one 399 You can text me there as well or email me in confidence at nursetalk at hotmail.com. Although we cover a variety of health subjects on the program, the show is not a replacement for a visit to your doctor virtually these days. Tonight on the program, we're talking about the new travel guidelines. Frozen shoulder. (laughs) There's a reason I'm talking about that. Heart health, three breakup words. Confidence in career changes. Love in a time of corona and spending time with strangers. Naked the benefits. Of course, we talk sex, so put those kidlets to bed, grab a cup of tea or a glass of wine, your lover, if you have one, because we've got lots to talk about, but right now... And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Bada bing. Uh, Shall I... We've got a great guest coming on. He comes on this program every Sunday night, typically. Uh... His name is Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. He is Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair at the University of Manitoba. He is also a contributor to Forbes. And he is interested, his other job, aside from coming here every Sunday night for me, is investigating or studying emerging viruses, in particular COVID-19. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. 
Good evening, Maureen. How are you? Uh, you know what? It was uh, it, it was a tough loss tonight for the Chiefs, but oh, you know. <laughs> I'm we'll, so we'll, we'll sorry. Get through it. <laughs> <laughs> it was, but there was something about sweet justice there. You got to admit. Yeah, yeah, and, and to be fair, listen, it's minus thirty six in Saskatoon, so you know I think the cold is just starting to take over any any signs of excitement. Right, right exactly. That is bitter cold, and it looks like Western Canada is going to be hit this week uh, with bitter, bitter, frigid temperatures. I will say. Uh, which makes me think about if you've got some extra coats in your closets out there and warm clothing and scarves and, you know, it might be time, you might have been putting that off, it might be time to uh, donate that to uh, those in need. Um, so how are we doing? We know we're, we know we're getting cold here. We're, things are getting more and more and more frigid all the time. Um, but how are we doing COVID-wise across the country, Dr. Kinderchuk? Uh, you know, this virus continues to throw new variables at us. And, you know, I think the, the past few weeks have been just kind of emblematic of how difficult it is to try to get control of uh, an emerging virus when, when it is spreading and when it's kind of stretching out its legs and figuring out how to transmit better and, you know, more efficiently from human to human. So, you know, Canada, um, you know, certainly we've seen, uh, you know, a decrease in cases in many regions, which has been fantastic. Um, but we also have this concomitant increase in uh, in variants that, that are being mm-hmm. found across the provinces. And, and that certainly is a, a big concern for us. I think, you know, we're watching decreases in cases in other countries, but the rising incidence of, uh, of B117 and the other variants, and that's, that puts uh, a lot of concern in, in our minds for what we're going to face in the next couple of months. Now, you've said in the past that the vaccines that are available uh, will work on these variants. But, you know, are we too reliant on vaccines? Look at Australia. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Uh, they they have just a completely different approach and attitude about the coronavirus. Uh, so they have managed to, they've had a significant number of lockdowns. And now uh, what they do is in Perth, for example, just one person uh, in the hotel, in the hotel industry, um, was found to be positive and that city went into lockdown for five days and it, it's almost uh you know a patriotic uh approach for them it's just like we know what we have to do we do this in order to keep our economy open keep people working keep our, you know our livelihoods going um and th- they've actually done pretty well with this uh they're they they do not seem to be as reliant I, I think people feel like once we have the vaccine we are all set but what are your thoughts on that well, that, that's 100% my concern, right? And, and I think it's echoed across uh, any number of uh, infectious disease experts. Um, when, when we look at the vaccines, the vaccines are going to provide us with, you know, that, that additional benefit to be able to try and, and curb transmission and, and essentially get everybody immune. Um, but the problem is, is that they are not going to do it alone. And I think that we're, you know, we're, we're starting to face the reality of the situation that, this is not going to be just vaccination alone that's going to take care of, of this virus. And certainly the Australia example has been um, you know, very, I think, uh, you know, very noteworthy uh, in regards to how well they've done with COVID-19. But certainly I think it is something that we're going to look back on and compare uh, our own response to and other countries' responses to and say, why didn't we go that route? Um, you know, certainly I, I think we have to face this, you know, this question of, would it be better to have really stiff lockdowns to try and get cases down to zero 
or to have these kind of, you know, the ebbs and flows and cyclic nature of, of some of the shutdowns that we've seen that ultimately have a long-term effect on economies and the health of people. It's, yeah, it, it certainly has been, um, uh, you know, I, I think, again, emblematic of, of COVID-19 across the globe and some of the missteps that we've made. It's really so complex and complicated, and it affects so many different aspects of life. And, and Australia seemed to have severe lockdowns at the beginning, but now they have kind of these rotating lockdowns, as you say, and people, but, you know, their economy is actually recovering, um, and, and people seem to be okay with that. The other thing is we look to the, on another note, I should say, we look to the U.S., and the U.S. has mm-hmm. has been problematic in and of itself. <laughs> But it seems to me that they seem to be doing a little bit of a better job uh, at del- delivering on the vaccines uh, versus that, that, versus Canada. Is well, it's it, certainly frustrating, isn't it? Uh, it is. You know, I think that I've I've talked to any number of my U.S. colleagues that have talked about the problems that they've had with with vaccine rollout, and you know, myself and the other doctor Kinderchuk were talking uh, this weekend, and we said. We, we have tons of friends that live in the U.S. that have been vaccinated uh-huh. already. Uh-huh. You know, they're sitting at around 10% population-wise, I think, that have been vaccinated, give or take. Um, you know, we're, we're well below that. It's certainly, um, you know, I think, yes, we, we used to look at the U.S. and the response efforts for COVID-19 as being kind of like, you know, this is the worst of the worst. Um, now we're seeing them uh, really step it up with the vac- uh, vaccinations and vaccine rollout. And, and I think we have a lot of questions that need to be addressed. Yeah, they certainly have stepped it up. And I mean, I have many, many family and friends, family who, who mm-hmm. are not in health care, quite frankly. Uh, some are, but some aren't. Some have been have had two. They've had both doses of the vaccination. I mean, I'm on the front lines with hundreds of people, <laughs> quite frankly. And uh, and I actually thought if I, honestly, I thought if I were to be one of the early people, you know, I wonder if there would be uh, an opportunity to give mine to somebody who, I know there would be somebody who's out there who would, would be in more in need than I am. But I am very frustrated by uh, the the, vac- the lack of vaccine response, the lack of a, a, a system, you know, to actually um, vaccinate as many people as possible. Some people have said, well, there are no vaccines to actually deliver. You know, we can't set this up. But I also know that one of the health authorities is just hiring nurses now, you know, kind of yeah. one by one. It's not a, a scaled up operation in a large facility where we can bring hundreds of people in. There's a system established in terms of flu vaccines. So I, I am very frustrated. And it's not like I'm being selfish that, oh my gosh, I want my vaccine. I actually am very, very compliant and wear PPE, you know, to the nth degree every day. Uh, so I, and I know that works. So I don't, I'm not too concerned, but it is frustrating that we seem to be slowing down in terms of vaccines. Well, and I think the big thing that that is concerning to me is the fact that, you know, we we are not just dealing with, you know, one circulating spray right now. We have these additional variants that we know if they if they start to really catch fire, they're going to you know really exert a lot of pressure. On uh, an already uh, exhausted healthcare system. So Absolutely, and I wanted to get people vaccinated. We do. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk is my guest. He 
has stayed on the line. If you're just joining the program now, uh, thanks for staying on the line, Dr. Kinderchuk. Before we get into the new Ebola case that was detected in Eastern Congo, another part of your um, work, um, I wanted to ask you about uh, the state of Iowa, the, um, who has actually um, they put into effect in November um, ma- mandatory masks and social distancing, and they seem to have changed that recently. The governor has is is actually encouraging people who are over the age of sixty five to stay home and to wear masks, and um, for people who have comorbidities or certain medical conditions to be careful. It used to be that. Uh, um, there were gatherings were only allowed to be a 15 um, and now they can be um, more gatherings, but they're actually putting the responsibility on the person themselves. And they're kind of saying, healthy people, you go out, don't, you don't have to wear a mask. They're encouraged, but you don't have to, and you don't have to socially distance. What do you think of uh, these new regulations in the state of <laughs> Iowa? <laughs> uh, yeah. So I just try to think how I say this in a politically correct way. Uh, listen, there's, there are you don't have to policies. be politically correct here. <laughs> <laughs> there are bad policies that have been made throughout this pandemic. And, you know, th- this continued idea that anybody that is under the age of 65 and that doesn't have comorbidities, that they are you know, absolutely fine with this disease is just such a fallacy. And, and I think to me, what's frustrating about this is that we we have seen the cases. We've seen the reports of people that have you know, these long-term health complications and, and these you know, different diseases or these different, uh, you know, uh, kind of comorbidities that, that have developed post-COVID, um, you know, regardless of whether they had mild or moderate or severe disease in younger age groups. That, to me, is, is frustrating. I, I, we're just not at a point where we fully understand what this looks like in a healthy individual. And certainly, when we think about transmission, and in particular with the variants, um, you know, how do we ensure that those people are going to, uh, to you know, to be um, separated from people that uh, are in higher age groups or that are in higher risk groups? I just, I don't know why we're going back to this idea that already was roundly defeated uh, in early 2020. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know what, a lot of people will say, you know, I mean, every single life, you know, that is, has been affected by this, you know, is a heartbreak for somebody um, that loves them or that they love. And uh, for somebody to say, well, you know, most of the people who have died from this are the elderly, you know, um, and it's really, at, you know, acting as though uh, people don't matter at, at certain ages um, and, and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, but yeah, so there is none of this. Unfortunately, I think the U.S. has politicized uh, the coronavirus um, yeah. big time. And uh, and other people might say, you know, there's a 99 percent survival rate of this um, virus. What do you say to those people? Well, you know, if, if we're looking at, you know, at, at say in Canada, we're looking at a one to three percent case fatality rate. Looking at, you know, 99 percent survival rate sounds great uh, unless you're in that one percent. And 1% in a high population is a lot of people. We've seen well over 400,000 people that have died in the U.S. And that far exceeded uh, you know, prior flu pandemics. Um, flu has a fairly low case fatality rate as well, but it kills a lot of people. And the people that don't die uh, and that recover from severe disease have a lifelong uh, you know, set of uh, uh, complications that they have to face as well. So we, we have to think beyond just this idea of, 
people that uh, live and people that die. There's that middle ground where there's a lot of people that have long-term health issues that, that we have to consider in all of this. And the families, of course, that, that are disrupted by, uh, by the fatalities and, and long-term complications that we see. And also the effect on our healthcare system and, and how other people may miss out on healthcare because of this, because there's so much focus on this. We're going to talk about that a little later on in the program. Tell me a little bit about the new Ebola case that was detected in eastern Congo. Yeah, listen, you know, the, the worst thing that, that we ever want to hear about during a pandemic is uh, something like Ebola cropping up again. So the, the DRC, we've seen a number of uh, Ebola outbreaks over the past few years, you know, really kind of after the, the West African outbreak. Um, and, and what we're seeing is you know, essentially a, a nearly annual uh, and, and probably biannual outbreak of Ebola in, in the DRC. Um, what we know right now is not that much. It, you know, we've seen a female that, uh, that was infected. Um, she has passed away. Her, uh, she was living or was married to a, a gentleman that had survived Ebola virus disease. We don't know much beyond that outside of the fact that they're screening contacts right now and trying to determine um, whether or not she was infected uh, by her husband, which happens to be the work that I do looking at Ebola virus persistence, uh, long-term persistence in people that survive. So I think for us, it, this should be the warning sign that we talk about low and middle income countries and we talk about regions of the world that are affected by infectious disease. We can't just think about COVID-19. Um, this is a extremely complicated issue when we talk about trying to uh, you know, to, to provide better services and, and uh, healthcare infrastructure in these regions. This is the reason why. Of course. And the emergence of more cases could complicate the efforts to eradicate yeah. COVID-19 as well. So, Dr. Kindrachuk, I always hate when this comes to a close because I thoroughly enjoy uh, talking to you. Um, anyway, until next week, hopefully. <laughs> Absolutely, Maureen. Take care of yourself. We are talking travel with Canada's travel guru, Claire Newell. She joins me on the line. Good evening, Claire. Good evening, Maureen. That's quite an introduction. I don't know about guru. I mean, entrenched with it for three decades. But Listen, so true. You are amazing. Your website, clairenewell.com, is just full of so much information. Travel tips, blogs, the physical effects of flying, becoming a travel agent. Um, you know, for your, your own experience with staying at a hotel during the pandemic, there's just so much information here. And, and yes, you've been, you've been at it and you're amazing at it. Um, and thanks for joining the program tonight. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. I wish it was under better circumstances, especially given the state of the travel industry at the moment. Uh, it's just in probably the worst state it's been in since the start of the pandemic. And I, I actually didn't think it could get any worse, Maureen, but it, it is. And I understand it's for good reason. We really obviously need to keep these um, infection rates down. And obviously, nobody wants these variants. But the Canadian government has made it really, really tough for the industry. And it's affecting so many people across this country. I am sure it has. It's it's just really horrific. And um, but as you say, with good reason, and hopefully this too shall pass. And this industry will be resuscitated, if you will, will, because that's exactly what it needs. Now, we're not going to be talking travel deals or travel best bets. We're going to be talking about Canada's new regulations for travel. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, a lot of people have been quite confused about it. Because on New Year's Eve, there was uh, what I'm calling kind of the first round of additions. So since the start of the pandemic, uh, March 13th of 2020, we know that we have uh, to, we've been asked by the federal government to avoid non-essential travel outside of our country. And 
there, there was not a, you know, a man, mandatory don't go. And so people were leaving the country and coming back to quarantine though for 14 days. And, uh, on uh, New Year's Eve on December 31st, there was an announcement by the federal government that anyone returning to Canada, now keeping in mind, very few people are even allowed to come into Canada. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've had the travel advisory in place. That same day, March 13th, 2020, there's been a ban on non-essential travel into our country by anyone who's not a Canadian citizen or PR. And there's a very small list, international students, essential workers, um, immediate family member, but it's quite limited. And there's been a fine of $750,000, which is a lot of money, mm-hmm. or uh, and or six months in jail if you didn't do that 14-day quarantine. However, we know, obviously, there's not been compliance because it has been spreading because of travel. And so the federal government said that anyone coming back to Canada as of January 7th needed to have a negative PCR or LAMP, L-A-M-P test, uh, taken 72 hours prior to flying back to Canada. This was interesting to me. It um, obviously really, again, um, affected travel. Air Canada uh, immediately saw a decline in uh, interest. Nobody really wanted to go through that. Caused a lot of confusion. Both Air Canada and WestJet cut tons of flights. So, Maureen, Air Canada at that point cut twenty-five, another twenty-five percent. They slashed seventeen hundred jobs. WestJet uh, cut routes by thirty percent and at least another thousand jobs. So, we thought, wow, that's still you know, it's I don't know how many people are even going to want to even do essential, like even if they felt like they wanted to go see a loved one mm-hmm. because they were passing or something. So kind of travel plummeted. Then we heard about this next layer. So in addition to everything else, the 14-day quarantine when you get back, the PCR test before your flight back, there the new layers of protection are going to be that you, as soon as you land in Canada at one of the four airports that they're allowing Canadians to come into, which mm-hmm. will be uh, Vancouver, Calgary, Montreal, or Toronto, you have to have another PCR test. So that would be the nasal swab one as soon as you land. And then you are taken to a government-supervised hotel for three nights at your own cost. Now, keeping in mind, you've got to do the PCR test when you're flying home and it's anywhere. I've been seeing it sit around 150 to $250, somewhere mm-hmm. in that mark. You land and then it's going to cost you approximately, their government is saying $2,000 for those three nights uh, in the hotel. And the what they're saying is that that will cover um, the hotel, the increased sanitation, the increased security because they are hiring uh, private security companies to monitor those hotels while you're staying in there. And if you test negative, you can go home, but to quarantine for the rest of your your 14 days with another PCR t- test on day 10 uh, once you've come home. So it's quite a lot. And then um, if you test positive, you will continue to quarantine in what they're calling a government facility. No details on what that is yet um, for the remainder until they can figure out which strain of COVID-19 you have. Um, they really, of course, are concerned about the variant. What's interesting about this, Somarine, is that the Minister of Transport last Sunday on CBC mentioned the date of being ready by February 4th. Like Everyone should be ready for it. Now, that wasn't just this past Thursday. That date's come and gone. 
Mm-hmm. And on the government of Canada's website, they still have the words incoming weeks. So um, yesterday I noticed that in the Montreal Gazette, they have said that they they expect that it could be several weeks if and when this even ever starts because of the fact that there's been so much backlash. Now I've seen, I've heard two camps and I'm sure you have as well. The camps that are like all for it. Nobody should travel. And I agree. I haven't traveled. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't traveled since last February. Um, I haven't been on a plane outside of Canada. Now, then there's the other camps who are like snowbirds. Have you heard this? Lots of snowbirds are saying I'm vaccinated. I want to come back and I shouldn't have to quarantine if I've been vaccinated. Not a lot of sympathy on that side, I, I must say, right. um, by, by the general public. But it is a valid concern. And there are people who are, well, organizations that are working on this because um, IATA, the International Air Transport Association, as well as the World Economic Forum are hoping to have these digital passes that are a coordinated effort all around the world. But can you imagine the undertaking? All the different types of tests, all the different languages. But they are working on this. It's being beta tested by a couple of airlines, including Emirates. Um, so we're hoping that that will start to come out by um the end of Q1, which would be, you know, the end of March, but it isn't ready yet. And there's no word from the, uh, the, our, our federal government that there would be any exemptions at this stage of the game, if, and if you're vaccinated. So I'm not sure how long this is going to take to put in place, given the backlash, given that there's been, um, a number of class action lawsuits put in saying it's against the, um, our rights. The, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So mm-hmm. I, I really don't know where it's going to go. I do know this, though, that um, the the announcements and the new requirements were the single biggest blow to the airlines. It definitely had a devastating impact on every vertical of travel and tourism in this country. And we immediately saw demand plummet, but not just with the Canadian airlines. Because the Canadian airlines, the big ones... Um, Air Canada, WestJet, Transat, Sunwing, they've all canceled their flights. Um, they collaborated with the government, all of the hotspots, the Caribbean and Mexico. Um, and that's until the end of the, the season, April 30th. They're, that's when they go to the sun destinations. Mm-hmm. But what unfortunately we've seen is an immediate plummet in all of the other airlines that are flying to and from Canada. So it's going to be very important, particularly on the Trans-Pacific and the Transatlantic routes that are critical right now. Those planes are carrying PPE, uh, pharmaceuticals, including the vaccines. And we just need to sh- ensure that we can um, keep those routes remaining open to support those essential, that essential trade until we can kind of round the corner and then lift some of these travel restrictions. Right. Very interesting. Um, Yeah, I think it's going to take a little while because I did go onto that government website and it did say for the hotel piece where you need to stay up to three days until you get your uh, hopefully negative PCR or lamp test, um, that they are actually still in the process of having hotels apply to be that approved mm-hmm. hotel. Um, but my question, too, is around the testing. Now, having a uh, an RT-PCR real-time 
polymerase chain reaction test 72 hours before means that, and that is negative in order for you to fly, means that you probably weren't infected at the time your sample was collected. And the test result only means that you didn't have COVID-19 at the time of testing. But an infected right. person can spread COVID-19 48 hours, starting 48 hours or two days before the person has any symptoms or tests positive. So to my mind, that test is completely worthless. <laughs> Almost completely worthless. I totally worthless. agree with you. Okay. I think that there's a better way. I think, and also 72 hours prior, what are you doing? If you're somewhere, are you staying and quarantining or self-isolating during that time prior to getting on the flight? There's no this, way. Exactly. I mean, from what I understand, um, doing, in my opinion, they should be using more rapid testing. They're cheaper and they've come a long way. I mean, early on, they weren't quite as accurate, but many of the, the rapid testing is much more accurate, accurate than it was even six months ago. And so it would be a, a good combination of using it, um, prior to flying and then a, maybe a PCR test as soon as you land and then go to your home and, and isolate. They were doing that already in Calgary starting November the 1st. Edmonton has act- had actually planned to start that on February 1st. And the process was when you landed in Calgary, you did have that PCR test. You went to your home, you self-isolated, you took another test on day uh, six or seven. And then you, as long as it tested negative, you were free basically. Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. It was actually after the first test. So On day the five, government, though, pulled I... that back. Yeah. So the government pulled that back. And yeah. uh, when they put all, all of these new rules in place, that's unfortunate because it seemed to be working. But, you know, uh, there's just, I guess, with the new strains, that's really what they're worried about. And I get it. This is not the time to be traveling. And I want everyone to make sure that they hear that out of my mouth. I'm not traveling. I actually live in Me BC, either. and I yeah, <laughs> I love to and I travel, been, and I have I love it. Like it's who I am, yeah. and I I had actually it's who planned. I want to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I had planned to go to um, uh, somewhere just as a getaway with my family, February 14th for three nights. My husband and our two kids—they're both doing university. Uh, online because they can't be in at the universities in class. So we just wanted a getaway. It's just a change of pace and to have something on the books. So I actually have five things on the books through spring and summer, all local BC getaways, mm-hmm. but I canceled the one mm-hmm. because we actually are not allowed to travel outside of the region we live in for, because some of the areas just don't have the, the, the capacity in their healthcare, in their hotel, um, hospitals and things. So, mm-hmm. I totally understood it. Made my, uh, I, I got, I saw my deal. I knew that the health and safety protocols were in place. I knew I would take care when I was going to the destination. Mm-hmm. Um, but the terms and conditions were key. I knew that I could get out of it. I wouldn't be holding the bag. And that's the thing. I think I do it and I get things on the books for my mental health. And I don't know how you, yeah, what, you might think I'm kind of cringe uh, on that, but I, no, no, I do. I need, I need something. To look forward to. Uh, it's been hellish, yeah, yeah. quite frankly. Absolutely. And, and a lot of people do. I wanted to pe- say, well, ask you one thing. You know, one yeah. group that is working uh, is the film industry. And they are working because they are wearing masks, KN95 masks and shields and gowns and gloves and hand sanitizing and health screening. And they are testing as well. And, and they have a significantly lower um, positivity rate. You, know, you don't hear about it. Um, then, And I just think every single industry needs to go that route as opposed to testing. 
but Claire, we're out of time. We gotta we gotta talk about oh, this we more. Are. <laughs> yes. Well we'll be back. You, you definitely I'll come back will and visit be back. you another time. Thank you so, yeah. so much. I really appreciate it. In this pandemic, lots of people have lost their jobs. They've needed to pivot, go into another industry, people in the tourism industry, hospitality, restaurants, to name a few. Mina Fung helps leaders and founders speak their vision through action and financial growth. She is host of 10 Times Vision podcast and an advocate for women's leadership. And she's here to tell us about an initiative called WIFA Global, W-I-F-A. She's on the line right now. Good evening, Mina. Hi, Maureen. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, thanks for joining me. Uh, thank you so much for... This is such an important initiative. Can you tell me a little bit about WIFA Global? Yes. Before I get to it, uh, the interesting thing is your show is talking about women and sex. And, me, and men, too, and they. <laughs> yes. Anyone, really. <laughs> as yes. long as they're, you know, Weaver consensual, Global. consenting adults. True. What's that? <laughs> At Weaver Global, we talk about women and money. Ah, okay. Yes. The funny thing is, every woman wants sex and money, but no one is comfortable talking about it. That so, is such a great point. Go. That is such a great <laughs> point. You're so right. That is so true. Yep. We but have, we have am... shame around both of them, in fact. I know. Making money, having sex. Yeah. You're right. Mina, you're amazing. Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> I'm no sex expert here, so I'll just stick to what I'm familiar with money. Well, I'm no finance expert, so I'm just going to stick to what I'm familiar with sex. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. This, um, we are going to launch a thing called Korea Game Changer. Um, pivoting is one of it, but more so it's about game changing for women. Like traditionally, women are waiting to be, um, have unlucky breaks, waiting to match our skills to a perfect job match, waiting for everything. So our game-changing thing is about thinking the way we think about ourselves, our capability, and how do we position our skill fit to the market. So it's not about position to, to the past. It's about position for the future. It's not about position for the match. It's about position for the fit. In that way, we think about who we are, where we are heading, and what we are capable of. So that will initiate the way we switch the thinking already give us a little bit more confidence. Of course, we have to practice it and that's the workshop. And it's a lot about confidence, isn't it? Or or lack thereof. And when people lack self-confidence or even lack uh, the belief in themselves that they're doing a good job or they need validation and then they lose their job potentially and, and, you know, things, you know, are having financial hardship, you know, how, how does this workshop help someone like that? It's special financial hardship. Um, not just the pandemic, but the pandemic highlights a trend even more alarming and scary. The alarming trend for women or for highly educated women, like not even the the the, the women who might be a little bit at disadvantages, like even for highly educated women, professional women, their earning power become flat quickly within five to ten years. 
So because of the pandemic and the future and the technology changes, everything will come much faster, including the shock, the uncertainty. And so over the lifetime, forget about even lifetime, within 10 years, the flat night and the career declines. Plus, if we want to choose to have families, they're totally out of the, the game. So this workshop is about how do they position themselves, think about multiple skill set, interchangeable skill set, think about a portfolio career, just like yourself, like you have contract with uh, Netflix, so you're in the movie industry, and you also have this talk show. So we want women to think about not the traditional game of playing with being a one check pony, but we have to think about multiple checks. That will be the only way to ensure our financial growth and ultimately our social impact. And the end game is change the gender gap. Well, it sounds like... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I'm not sure you heard that um, we take another, especially in the States, take another 208 years for for generation lifetime to have the gender parity. That in is, Canada, I know. a little better. We're up against the clock, Mina. I've got to have you back and talk about women and money, but uh, people can go to this website. Uh, why don't you give me the website for, is it WeFa Global? Yeah, WeFaGlobal.com. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. And she's joined by the doctor. Compassion, dedication, extraordinary care. He's an experienced general cardiologist in private practice and the head of cardiology at Lionsgate Hospital and the North Shore Heart Center in North Vancouver, British Columbia. And he joins me on the line, Dr. John Weisler. Good evening, Dr. Weisler. Good evening, Maureen. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing? I am great, and thanks for having me on again. Well, thanks for joining me. Well, some hearts were pumping today, were they not? <laughs> I think so, yeah. Some <laughs> yes. people got pretty wound up with the game, yep. <laughs> they certainly did, but some healthy hearts on the sports field. I know you do some work with some sports players in British Columbia, or maybe it's not so busy right now, but uh, um, that that is some... That's a time when, I, I just thought of this now, but that is a time when um, people can have a, a sudden cardiac arrest. Is that correct? Yeah, that, that's right. And, and uh, you know, for all of you listening in, I'd like to reassure you the risk of anything happening when you're active or when you um, exercise remains very low. So it's very low for most people. Um, and then, uh, but we do screen. So my work with uh, the professional sports teams in, in BC are to screen their players. We screen them once a year and we screen them for really rare conditions. Um, and they're rare in athletes like they are in the rest of us. But, you know, when these events, when these cardiac arrests on the field, when they happen, they get a lot of press and they're devastating and people get afraid to, to play sports. So we look for rare electrical or muscle problems with the heart that could predispose to something going awry when you're, when you're exercising. Because these are seemingly extraordinarily healthy people who are, are playing in the Super Bowl, or, or one would imagine. But, but they probably get checked out uh, quite extensively. They do. And, and the thing with professional athletics, it's, 
sort of more uh, a more extreme version from what we all like to do when we exercise. So obviously, people are athletes are going to push their hearts to different limits, and so if somebody has an underlying condition, perhaps the professional sport is a little bit more likely to aggravate that and have it show up. And yes, the NFL players they usually get screened once a year, which is our standard in you know all the leagues I work for, the CFL, Major League Soccer, the NHL. Uh, so we do a ECG to look at their heart's electrical signal and uh, usually an echocardiogram, an ultrasound of their heart, and then we review them for any symptoms that might have shown up, um, you know, since they were last screened. And, and you could tell that they're in amazing shape. You know, I mean, I'm always amazed when they, you know, roll around on the field or, you know, uh, they're mm-hmm. thrown into the air and, and yet can, uh, you know, land on their feet, uh, essentially. Um, how helpful is that or how beneficial is that for people to be conditioned, if you will, through physical activity and exercise so that they, you know, what impact does that have on a person's heart health? So it's, it's hugely um, beneficial. Um, to digress for a moment with the professional athletes, it's kind of a nerd fascination, but, you know, their hearts are so well conditioned, they can be tough to tell from like a mild version of abnormal. So you need to be very well trained in the cardiac tests that we use. For most of us, you know, walking or cycling or whatever it is we do to exercise, we don't get those those weird fascinating changes that some of the pros get. Um, but it's tremendously beneficial. It, um, exercise lowers our blood pressure. It helps our heart to work. Uh, more efficiently. It relaxes the arteries in our heart. And so, um, you know, it's, it's one of the st- physical activity is one of the strongest predictors of whether or not you're going to get heart disease and, you know, being active, way less likely to get heart disease. And uh, it's a strong impact on how long we live. So it's a, it's a hugely predictive value. Now, may I ask a personal question about exercise? Sure. <laughs> if you don't mind. Um, I don't mind. What, I often hear it that there are health benefits to uh, swimming in freezing cold water. So <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I went swimming yep. today <laughs> in freezing cold, cold sure. water. It was freezing. Yep. Um, you know, and I went and I, it's about seven or eight of us that swim throughout the year, but we have haven't for a while and and somebody said it was sunny somebody said let's go and i got there and i thought "Eh, i'd already done a two-hour hike um in the morning and then i just i took a nap actually in the afternoon but i got up and i thought no i'm going and i i I really felt like i wasn't going to put a wetsuit on because i wasn't sure the wetsuit would fit with the pandemic pounds um and i didn't feel like i was too tired to actually yank it on me so i thought ah the heck with it i'll just swim in my suit. And uh, so then I decided I'm not going to go. And then I decided to go. And I just said, the only way to do this, everybody was, you know, very gingerly walking in. And I just thought, no, the only way to do this is to dive in and just to do the Australian crawl for as long as I could. And then realize, you know, I've got to turn around now. It's freezing, screaming the entire time. Uh, Is that going to be, is there a risk of it's going to be a shock to my system? Is it going to have any impact on my heart? Does the cold water affect it in any way? I think I think the the risk is very small. So I would also like to add that I think you're very brave for for doing that. That's very impressive, <laughs> like a polar bear swim, basically in, in early February. Um, so I, I think any risk from the shock of the cold water is very small. Swim, um, swimming is an excellent like version of aerobic exercise. You use your whole body to get through the water, at least most of the time. Like if you use your arms and legs, like most people do, you would. And it's a it's a good aerobic exercise. It's um you know easy on joints and and muscles and things like that. Um, unless you get a cramp from the cold, I guess. But overall, the benefits of swimming for your for your heart are huge. Um, any risk for your heart is you know probably very small related to a sudden shock of immersion in the cold water. That probably wouldn't be a 
any significant concern for most people. You know, perhaps the, the odd person I might ask to be careful, there's certain type of, you know, genetic conditions where you're predisposed to heart arrhythmias. Some of them should probably check with their, like we call them electrophysiologists, their heart rhythm specialist before they go in the water. Um, or if you, you know, have not well-treated angina. So if you have a lot of frequent chest pain, probably you shouldn't go in the water and make that worse. Everybody else, the risk of the cold water immersion is very small and you get all the benefits of swimming. So yeah, I think, it, I think it's very safe and, and, uh, you know, a great form of exercise. You know, but some people, I remember some, a patient that I had, uh, he was not in good shape at all and, uh, you know, overweight, large abdomen, and he actually decided to dive into a pool, you know, off of a diving board. <laughs> like 70 years old, dive in and he threw his back out. So, but a lot of people, yeah. when they start exercising, uh, they, they go, you know, they, they go to extremes. So they'll yeah. jog for five miles or, you know, when they never have, how beneficial is it to start slow? I think that's hugely beneficial, both for your heart. You know, if, if you haven't been conditioned for a while, I mean, probably you're fine, but it's always good to start up slowly. It'll also be, you know, more enjoyable because you'll gradually, like acclimatize or get used to the workload that you want to do. So to start slowly and gradually build up. So it's, it's important and good for your heart. And, and that way you sort of like, like for the, for the swimming today, you kind of knew what the cold water is going to feel like. So you'd, you'd done it before you'd already, you know, been in shape, uh, you know, so it, it's um, not as much of a shock as if you'd gone from doing nothing to going in that cold water. So I think it's really important for your heart to start up sort of gradually and have a plan to work in, work up to the level of activity you want to do. And then it's also good for, example your patient like the musculoskeletal the back the joints you know a sore knee or something that you might have forgotten about for a while things like that so i I think it's beneficial for all of that yeah i just didn't want people to think that they could go out there and just jump into the ocean (laughs) but but i have to say you know um we do have a text let me let me just let's just grab this text andrew can read it to me because i can't see it for some reason go ahead andrew yeah no it's just a texter from alberta texted it and and you were talking about you know professional sports athletes uh with heart attacks there's jay bowmeister had a heart attack on the St. Louis Blues bench a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, not so much, you know, that's all they mentioned. It was just, you know, they wanted to bring that up. But, you know, these kinds of things really do happen. It's not something that, you know. And and they're young men, you know, yeah. and, and one wouldn't think that a young man would have heart disease, but congenital heart disease is very real. And that's something that people are born with. Yeah, and I, I don't. I, I remember vaguely the story of uh, of Jay Bowmeister, um, and he had had some other like less. I think I think he had, and this is all public knowledge. So it's you know it's not that I I didn't treat him, but uh, this is what I read when I was actually doing like presentations on the topic years ago. So he had um, some other rhythm problems um, in his past. He'd had I think atrial fibrillation, uh, and he'd had it success or, or SVT. It's something something. Um, you know, annoying but not dangerous that he had had ablated. So it's a minimally invasive procedure where a specially trained cardiologist, uh, electrophysiologist, we call them, they thread little wires up, you know, up your veins, up into your heart, and they carefully scar the inside of your heart and make the abnormal electricity stop. So he'd had that done. And then his cardiac arrest was a different problem that hadn't been, you know, foreseen. Um, and, And he'd obviously been extremely well tested. You know, I don't know if they were doing regular screening at the time or not, but he would have had a number of tests as part of his treatment of his other less dangerous rhythm problem. So it sort of highlights the importance, you know, when you do organized athletics, remember the risk is very low, so I don't want people to to be scared. It's worth going out there and doing that exercise. The benefits are way stronger, but you should have 
as any public facility should, you should have like, um, you know, some sort of emergency response plan. And they had, they, they treated him promptly when he had his arrest on the bench and he um, was resuscitated and, uh, and uh, he's not playing hockey anymore, but he's, you know, done very well otherwise from what I, from what I understand. Right. And, and a defibrillator um, was used to save his life yeah. basically. And, and that's a very important uh, device as well. And very, very simple to use. So, um, exactly. You know, we're glad um, that people do recover. We just kind of got off on the on the sports um, because of the Super Bowl. You know, no other reason. But the other thing I wanted to say is um, what I I literally went to the beach thinking, no, I'm, I sat there. I'm like, I'm not going to go. I'm not going in. And I had a hot cup of tea. And and then I then I, they were all going in except for me. And somebody said, Oh, you're going to feel so great afterward. And and this competitive, like I have a mild, mild vein of of competitiveness in me. You know, I'm not really the most competitive person out there, but that came to life. (laughs) And then I sprung from the picnic table and ran into the ocean. Um, I remember a patient telling me that he was having a stress test. um, And that's something that that people have, you know, when they have heart disease. And he said he looked to the gentleman next to him and he decided to, um, you know, he was going to beat him. And so he was very competitive. (laughs) We we try to discourage that. You know, we, we we want patients to just go to where they get out of breath or get symptoms or they get their heart rate up high enough, right. on, you know, how you're doing it. But uh, yeah, we try to discourage that, but it, <laughs> it does happen for sure. We, we try to, we have two stress tests in our office and we have a divider between them, you know, to partly for that reason, you know, more important with COVID to keep the two people separate. But we have, um, you know, we try to avoid that competition because it, in theory could be bad, you know, um, yeah, we try to discourage that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, you know, there are very competitive people it's out there. there. It happens. Yeah, exactly. yeah. And, 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 and some people, uh, sorry to interrupt, oh, I was going to say some, some um, recreational athletes will become very motivated, very competitive. Often, as we grow older, it's, um, you know, competing against ourselves, trying to get our best time sometimes. But some people that want to recreationally be active uh, really do want to push themselves very hard. And so if they also have heart disease, then it's important to do some sort of assessment beforehand and make sure that they're that they're safe to do so. Absolutely. But, you know, point is here is, um, you know, it's very, very low. If you're a, a, an athlete, you know, the risk of death during competitive sport in a sample of athletes between the ages of 12 and 45 in the New England Journal of Medicine found the risk was very low at 0.76 cases per 100,000 athlete years. So that is significantly yeah. low. Yeah, um, the the fellow on the stress yeah. test that I know, he was having chest pain. He just decided not to tell anybody because he was going to beat the guy next door. <laughs> anyway, I'd like you to stay on the line if you don't mind because we can sure. talk about what we plan to talk about, which is actually people avoiding hospital emergencies departments with chest pain. Dr. John Weisler is a cardiologist and he is my guest. We've been talking about the sports teams and heart health, but now we're going to be talking about uh, what's gone on in the pandemic. We think it's all about masks and social distancing and coronavirus, but there's another issue that has been longstanding. And that is the fact that many people with heart disease are failing to turn up to the emergency department out of fear, out of fear of contracting COVID-19, out of taking away resources from other patients who need it to be treated with, uh, who need to be treated for COVID-19. Dr. Weisler, what do you make of this? Well, I think it's, um, you know, um, it's important to get treated if you, uh, if you have a heart attack, I guess, number one. Um, and, and with another number of other things, things like stroke and other conditions, um, time is critical with some of these. You know, when, when you have a heart attack, your, um, one of your arteries gets blocked and the heart muscle starts to get injured and starts to die effectively. If we can open that artery quickly, um, 
we can uh, potentially save a lot of heart muscle, which we can't regrow later. You know, stem stem cell research uh, for heart disease and other things still in very early stages, not something we can apply it. So you want to treat heart disease quickly. Um, and it's always been a problem with, uh, with heart disease, people that don't recognize their symptoms or put off getting them assessed. And, you know, anecdotally, and now there's data to back this up, you know, with the pandemic, people are so afraid to go in for the reasons you mentioned that, um, you know, we, we see uh, fewer and fewer patients showing up um, with uh, in the emergency rooms. And, and so there's concern that, uh, you know, patients won't get treated and we'll see um, people later in life suffering when they when they didn't need to. Yeah, they will be sicker later. Um, and so it's very, but there has been a significant reduction and therefore that's going to have a whole new burden on the healthcare system. As you say, if people don't get treated quickly and as soon as possible, then likely their heart disease will worsen. Exactly. And there have been, um, you know, large drop-offs in, um, in you know, different cardiac tests done and, and patients seeking care in the emergency room. So um, some examples uh, from the United States, they showed um, reduction in sort of patients presenting to their family doctors and then getting referred for things like stress tests and echocardiograms decreased by over half. So sort of 60 or 65% reduction in, in volumes. Um, I, I don't have data on the outpatient experience in Canada, but anecdotally, we all like think it's similar. A lot of our testing has been, you know, postponed at a few years of the pandemic. Um, and then you know, when, with some data from the Again, from the United States, this comes from a data out of New York and surrounding states. They showed um, later in the pandemic, so after the first three months, they uh, they had um, people coming in who were significantly sicker with their heart disease. So they showed an increase in uh, an increase of about fifty six percent over sort of the few years before people presenting with heart failure because their heart muscles were damaged, didn't squeeze as well, and so the the lungs fill up with fluid because the hearts aren't working as well, which is one uh, complication of, of heart disease. So it's important to, to remember that time matters when you have symptoms and, you know, hospitals do everything they can to try and screen for COVID-19 and prevent outbreaks. Of course. Um, just with Valentine's Day coming up, uh, people call it broken heart syndrome. Is it real? <laughs> and, and with yes. people and oftentimes maybe somebody's going to get broken up on this week and the words, uh, it's not about you, it's about me. Those can be warning, a warning sign. So broken heart syndrome is real. Yeah, it's uh, it's important to respect any symptoms. And broken heart syndrome usually like feels kind of like a heart attack when you get it, and you can't tell unless you come to hospital. And we do tests, so that's um that's uh it's a sudden decline in your heart's ability to squeeze brought on by a really stressful event. So uh, breakups can do it. It's often um it's it's more common in, in older patients, although younger patients still can get it. But it would often be like a long term relationship where one partner dies or leaves suddenly, or a sudden financial loss. And then the heart muscle doesn't squeeze well. And so you get short of breath, you get chest pain. It uh, feels like a heart attack and, um, and, uh, and uh, you know, it looks to doctors in some ways like a heart attack until we do more advanced testing. It is treatable and most patients will do well if we catch it. But again, another reason it's important to get that looked after. Dr. Diana, Diana Wiley, PhD. She is the author of the book, Love in the Time of Corona. She joins us from Washington State. Good evening, Dr. Diana. Good evening, Maureen. It's so nice to be with you. Oh, well, thanks for joining me. I'm particularly elated because this afternoon here in Seattle, my husband and I got our first vaccine shot from Pfizer. 
Wow. Congratulations. Yes. And I happen to, uh, you're out of Canada, and I happen to have a daughter married to a Canadian and living in B.C. and my two grandsons, and I haven't seen them except on Zoom for uh, a year. So we'll be so glad when we're vaccinated and when the border opens up. And I know we're not talking about that, but I just wanted to tell you. But actually, I have a good segue into this because I've been staying very healthy through this quarantine uh, because I have a really good marriage. And Brian and I, both in our 70s, have a very robust sex life. And we know from a lot of studies that that the health benefits of being active sexually, having more sex, it boosts the immune system. And um, so that's just one of the benefits of good sex. And, you know, there's a myth out there that older people don't have sex, that sex stops at 45 or 50 or, or 65 or 70. You're here to tell us it doesn't. I'm absolutely here to tell you it doesn't. (laughs) Actually, in the early 90s, when I lived in Palo Alto, California, I did a study with a medical doctor on aging and sexuality, actually two studies, and these studies were later published in medical journals. So since the early 90s, I've been able to call myself a gerontologist, and I specialize in aging and sexuality, and it's really, it's very good that I have all this information and all this this. The, the sexual skills, as does my husband, because we're mature and happy. Um, but I've I've studied it, and and so I um, actually a study was done of sex therapists some years ago, and they wondered if sex therapists have better sex, and it turns out they do because they have more knowledge, so therefore they have less anxiety. Of course, it makes so much sense. Now, um, so you are not a case of um, the cobbler's kids have no shoes. You are the sex therapist that does have sex. I practice what I preach. We practice what I preach. Excellent, excellent. And before I recommend things, including sex toys, to my couples, I see everybody on Zoom these days, of course, um, I like to try stuff, so... It's kind of hands-on research that my enthusiastic husband doesn't mind at all. we got to try this out before I can recommend it. <laughs> so. Of course, of course. Um, yeah. I, now, the pandemic has brought a whole host of sexual issues to light for couples. How do couples or people remain sexually active? Let's just start with somebody who's in a committed relationship. They've been sent home, they're homeschooling, they're dealing with their parents as well. Um, They're working from home. They've had to pivot in so many ways. Maybe one has lost their job. Uh, Maybe it's the one that has lower self-esteem or less self-confidence. How can they keep that, the fire burning in the bedroom? Well, there are lots of challenges. And I think, uh, and, and so much so that some people have just thrown in the towel. And so, you know, I'm too anxious, I'm too depressed, I don't want to have sex. And, but, of course, that's not true with my clients because they're coming to me for therapy, which I, by the way, I do recommend, of course, uh, that if you're really in, in an impasse, uh, go ahead and, and get some therapy if you're really stuck. Um, but... I think the best way to make sex happen, and gradually, is to put sex on the calendar. Uh, 
I mean by that, plan a date night at home. We have Valentine's Day coming up. It's really the perfect time to um, to have uh, to put to have a date night to create your own bubble of love, and um, so you you create you put sex on the calendar, and you have this date night, and um, I recommend that couples who haven't been sexual for a while ease into it, go slowly, and have plenty of emotional foreplay. And you can even cook together. Maybe you can call that gastronomic foreplay. Because um, that, could, that can be a lot of fun, cooking Maybe together. Maybe you could clean up together. That would be helpful. Yes, yes. <laughs> because yes. we're better at cleaning up. I, I, I hear that all the time. You're so much better at it. And straight I am. Um, but I but think that's least, actually you know, a romantic activity. Communicating. Yes. And that's, that's the thing. You've got to communicate. You're uh, not going to be having sex if you're angry with each other and you have all these unresolved problems. Absolutely. I wanted to read a little um, email that I received um, where it's a gentleman who talked about his uh, sexless marriage. He was in a 12-year sexless marriage during the best years of his sexual vitality, the ages of 20 to 32. They had a child together, and then he finally um, left his wife after 12 years, and he remarried uh, somebody at age 40 to a uh, woman who was older than he was, and sex was you know great uh, two to three times a week. And then uh, she had some medical conditions, a hysterectomy, and she experienced vaginal dryness. And then he says he tried to follow all the advice of my program, the womanizer, gynotroph, V-love, we-vibe. <laughs> anyway, yeah. and then they finally went to their doctor and discussed sex life uh, with their doctor, and he prescribed sex twice a week, and he writes fist, fist pump. And then all of a sudden he became his favorite doctor, and his wife is now better at attempting to follow the prescription. Um, anyway, so th- this is this is good advice. Put sex on oh, the yes. table. You know, uh, people that have good sex, and twice a week is a good number, uh, they are much happier, and they communicate better, and they talk more, and they're, they're often also pretty well differentiated. They're, they're, they, they don't have a lot of fears about intimacy and being really, really close. Now, I get a question quite frequently. I I see patients online as well, or clients online as well. And one of the biggest things is, you know, the couples want to stay together. You know, they are in love. This is the one for them, blah, blah. But one reports that um, the the partner, the spouse, isn't the, that the partner or the the spouse, whatever, is not um, uh, sexually adventuresome. Uh, enough for, and so they have quite a different approach to the bedroom. What do you suggest for um, couples who are struggling with this, where the sex becomes boring and the same old, same old, same positions? What do you recommend? Well, I recommend that, um, first of all, they can use uh, a wonderful uh, list in my book, Love in the Time of Corona, a sex therapist, sex therapist advice for couples in quarantine, and the it's in the first chapter. Get to know your partner better, and it's a sex menu. It has about forty-four different sexual activities, going all the way from vanilla into kinky. Uh, and it's it's not even a complete list, but the couple can go through this 
and answer yes, no, maybe, giver, receiver. So many of my clients have done this, and they've discovered so many wonderful things about their partner that they've been with for 12 years and had no idea that that their part that their wife that their husband might like to do this especially as we veer more toward the kinky end of things and playing out fantasies can also anything that gives you novelty because dopamine in our brain which is the hormone of arousal needs novelty to be expressed so if you do a new sexual position or try something new, that's novelty, more dopamine. If you play out a fantasy, fantasies can work well if you've got somebody who's kind of introverted and, and shy about being in a sexual uh, lover. But in a role, then playing it out, it can overcome some of that, that inhibition. Um, so anything new that you can do together, um, maybe even reminisce about pastimes when they were good. Get out a scrapbook and look at it together. Dance to old tunes that you liked um, 15 years ago or whatever it was. Um, there are ways that you can reconnect. Well, all sounds like great advice, Dr. Wiley or Dr. Diana. Um, I'd love to get you back on the program to talk about more. And um, yeah, really appreciate you joining well, you know the program. You know how to find me, and I, you know, and I could how, just go on and on and on. How do May we I, find your book? Yes, thank you, <laughs> dear Dr. Diana dot com, dear Dr. Dr. Diana dot com, and uh, there you will find. It's an advice column, so there you'll find questions that people have written in and that I've answered. And uh, also there are links to my YouTube channel where I have a whole bunch of sex tips on YouTube. And, um, and also how to get the book Fan- through Amazon. Fantastic. And what a wonderful book it is. I really appreciate your time. And we'll talk to you again. Thank you. You're very Thank welcome. You. It, was, it was fun to talk with you this evening. Aww, the pleasure was all mine. All Thanks. right. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.